The beautiful thing about learning is that no one can take that away from you. Once you learn and you figure things out, you have evolved. The moral of the message is surround yourself with people that are smarter than you, more knowledgeable, and immediately the bar will be traced. The biggest mistake we make as human beings is we, we stop evolving and learning. This is why we formed Hard Fat Fitness to bring you the most experienced people in science in efforts of helping you, the listener, achieve your optimal potential. Welcome to Hard Fat Fitness, episode two, nutrition. Hi guys, welcome to Hard Facts Fitness, episode two, nutrition. We are super excited. Sonia, are you excited? Super excited. I, <laughs> we're like big fans, you know, like in the, in the nerdiest realm. I was like, what if we do Dr. Joe? I'm a little <laughs> starstruck, I must admit. <laughs> you don't have, you don't know, you know, until you try. So you, you guys have me excited. This is, this is amazing. I'm, uh, I love your mission. I love what you're doing. And I think this is just fantastic. Today we want to get started, and even before, and, and I, want to, I want to do him due diligence here, and I want to do a formal introduction to Dr. Joe, but before we even do that, what I want to do is take about 30 seconds of our time here for all our listeners, and I want to say thank you to one person who's been absolutely amazing. Sonia, you've been absolutely great. We talk about this every day. Her and I, we geek out on, on things like this at the gym, and, and we try to put forth what can we do better to provide listeners with the best outcome? The efforts that she puts forth every day is awesome. So I want to take the time to thank you from the bottom of our heart, the team Amino Pure, Amino Pure, for everything you do on a daily basis and, and always brainstorming and coming up with different ideas. And, and uh, it was uh, her idea to bring Dr. Joe here today. So I want to say thank you, first of all, for that. You're so welcome. <laughs> awesome. So I wanted to start, even before we start with our, our nutrition aspect of our program today, I wanted to answer a couple of questions. A lot of questions were asked after episode one with regards to our L-carnitines. I want to simplify it a little bit because there were a lot of questions that were brought up to our team members. And deciding which one is ideal for me and how to make those choices. So I, I, what I did is basically made them quite simple. And then we're going to geek out a little bit and talk a little bit about Neuro360 and how that works from a nutritional standpoint, from a chemical standpoint as well. So everybody knows that the L-carnitine that we offer, 500 milligrams per milliliter, uh, they understand the, uh, the fat loss properties of it. Okay, so if you don't, if you don't, Go back, listen to episode one. Episode one was lit, guys. We actually checked. We had over 4,200 people view uh, that episode one, which for us is just amazing being it, it was our first episode. Uh, then we have aminocarnic extreme with B12, which I call it turbocharged L-carnitine. It has all the properties of L-carnitine plus the B12, which offers all the, the metabolic boosts and all the properties that B12 has. Again, if you need to have know a little bit more, episode one, we'll definitely dive into different protocols and provide that information. Then we have Neuro360. So Neuro360 is a trifecta. And what, the way that I call it is L-carnitine on steroids. It really is that great, guys. It has the acetyl-L-carnitine, it has the L-carnitine, and it has B12. So the acetylocarnitine, the way that it works, it boosts acetylcholine, which is a neurotransmitter, which is tied to memory and overall brain function. The acetylocarnitine is a precursor to acetylcholine in the presence of coenzyme A. Now, coenzyme A is a ubiquitous and essential cofactor that is involved in the large proportion of all central metabolic reactions. You find coenzyme A in meat, eggs, chicken, uh, vegetables, 
anything that has B vitamin five is gonna have coenzyme A. And the way that it, this happens is in the presence of coenzyme A, acetyl-L-carnitine goes through a process called acetyl transfer phase, which converts it into acetylcholine, which provides all the cognitive benefits of acetyl-L-carnitine. So once it, there's a conversion into acetylcholine, what you're getting is brain food. I mean, you can literally tell, I know I've been on it for about a month and a half. Sonia's tried it already. And you can tell immediately being that it's an injectable that you get that extra pep in your step. You're awake, you're more aware of things, you're more productive. Uh, it's 100% bioavailable. And that's the nootropic part of Neuro360. Then you have the fat loss properties of Neuro360, which is the L-carnitine, which is hit again because acetyl-carnitine has the same fat loss properties as L-carnitine does. So you're basically getting it twice. Then you have all the benefits of B12, which is an antioxidant, metabolic boost, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and you have a wonderful trifecta of a product. So I hope that puts all the questions to rest. I didn't want to take too much time talking about that, but I did want to address those issues because a lot of questions came up. How do I know what to pick? That is basically our synopsis, our summary of the th three different products that we have uh, amongst others. So with that being said, let's get started on the topic at hand, all things nutrition. Let me do the proper introduction, right? Master's degree in health, doctorate in nutrition, doctorate in health education, master of fine arts in creative and professional writing, physical therapist, I probably missed a lot of things, author of multiple books, world acclaimed, Dr. Joe Klumzewski. Please go ahead and do a quick introduction. And then I want to basically give you a synopsis of the questions that have been asked. And the target primarily is to tackle dieting for novice, people that are trying to put a plan together. And I'll ask, ask some questions and you can summarize that. And then uh, we'll dive into competitive uh, dieting. And then Sony's going to dive a little bit more into the uh, peak week with mistakes on peak week and, and whatnot. So please give us your introduction, sir. Awesome. Well, thank you guys so much for having me. Uh, like I said, your mission is exactly where I started. So when I was doing my first competition, 20 years old, I had already been you know training and, and reading muscle magazines for you know, years since I was 11, 12 years old. And, and immediately I was seeing how many things would go wrong during that, that peaking process. Uh, you know, at my very first contest, I'm seeing people who look great, you know, who don't, I'm starting to kind of interview people. And as I, I went through my first couple of contests, I was already doing, uh, you know, some pre-med and allied health work, you know, nutrition, physiology on my way to becoming orthopedic physical therapist. And, and since I had just been self-studying this for more than a decade at that time already, I, I just saw this stuff doesn't make sense. These methods people were using, like, like cutting water, you know, sodium loading, sodium depleting, all, all of those types of, of methodologies just, just completely counter to physiology. So I, 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 that was kind of rumbling in the back of my head. And then in my own experience, I saw that come out on, on contest days. I, I would do everything right, quote unquote, by, by the experts. And yet I would always look my worst on that day. And I started talking to other people. And of course, that's the same experience. That's just competition life. Like, why would you settle for that? Why would being your worst on contest day be the norm? So I started just kind of reverse engineering these things. I started keeping water in. I started doing things like increasing sodium or instead of decreasing, making sure you had the right levels of sodium, potassium, and other minerals. And that really got me started down this track of, of at least investigating it. And uh, so I, I just stayed on my own personal journey all the way up to becoming a, a, a drug-free pro bodybuilder, uh, 
you know, stayed so intrigued that I ended up doing my, my first doctorate in nutrition. And, and that was all just for fun. I mean, just, just literally to learn this stuff myself. And then once I had that level of education, plus I was a pro, I started getting picked up by a lot of the, the popular, you know, training and fitness and, and muscle magazines, bodybuilding magazines, writing articles. So I started writing about these things and, and they were obviously of, of interest to a lot of people. And so one thing led to another. Uh, I, I offered to help a, a really top pro, you know, compete for a competition, any one. And, and he thought that was great. And so he wanted to, to hire me again. And I thought, wait a second, this, this thing may work. Like this could be a business. And so just because I was helping people and I was so enthralled with the science, you know, that's where the entire coaching industry started, you know, more than, more than 20 years ago. And, and now there are people like you out there saying, man, this is, this is the way to go. We got to, we got to know what we don't know. We've got to figure it out. We've got to learn the science behind it and make sure we're doing it. Not only so it's the, the healthiest and safest, but health and safety aren't antithetical to performance. They actually make performance better. So I, I know that's what you're all about. So I'm just thrilled to be here and, and hopefully we can get some good information out. Wonderful. Uh, great intro. So these are the topics. I mean, we put on, we did a lot of advertising for your presence here at, at, at our podcast and a lot of the people I saw chiming in. So a lot of the questions that were asked is, can you please inform us a little bit more for the novice lifestyle eating person, right? Metabolic adaptation. What, what does that mean? Learning what's right for your body. How should a novice set their diets for success without rebound? How do you address genetic differences in somatypes when building a program? How can a person create a successful and sustainable diet for lifestyle? Uh, we've heard a lot of times, and it makes me cringe when I hear people say, hmm. I'm on a diet, so I'm going to go eat salad and fruit for the next three weeks, and, I, and I'm going to lose 25 pounds, right? And that sets, is setting yourself up for a big rebound or some, some failure of that sort. So if you can address some of those things, how to create a successful, sustainable diet plan for lifestyle, how do you find a sweet spot? to not slow down your metabolic rate, but keep it in good range, not to gain fat or lose muscle. What do you see as practical versus not practical dieting? Again, how to prevent rebounds. And the most famous one that was added at the end was how do you handle cheat meals so that they don't become binges? You can start with that. I know yeah, I threw a lot of things at you, but I know you're the master of this stuff. So I'm sure that you, you have an answer for all of these. Well, there, I mean, there's a, there's an amazing amount of related nature to everything that you just asked. And it's all related back to just, just where should I start? How, how, what, what, what is a good diet plan so that I don't start with metabolic adaptation? So I'm not, I'm not necessarily going into massive levels of suppression and, and just that phrase alone to start there. First, we have to accept that metabolic adaptation is a normal part of physiology. Like that's just going to happen. If I weighed 50 pounds more, then my metabolism is going to be higher because that amount of, of extra stress for my heart, my lungs, my muscular system is going to make me burn more calories. When I'm lighter and leaner, my body's more efficient, so I don't have to work as hard. It's like resting heart rate. Uh, right now, I go into the doctor for a physical. My resting heart rate is, is in the 40s. Well, why is it in the 40s? Because I'm fairly lean, healthy, do cardio, train, have done that for decades. So that means my body is so efficient 
it's not overworking, you know, all the time. So it's a little bit antithetical to what people want, but I'll explain the benefits of that. Now imagine if I was a hundred pounds overweight and I, I just would like start breathing hard and sweating, walking across the room. Well, now I'm burning more calories. And so my metabolism is actually higher, but I'm, I'm not healthy by any stretch. Uh, so it's not necessarily what you want is to have a super fast metabolism you want it to be healthy and sustainable at the body comp you're at. And, and so, you know, metabolic adaptation is the normal way to think about this and frame it. Metabolic suppression is what you want to stay away from. Because if I start, uh, you know, doing way too much cardio, I start dieting on too few calories, I bring my carbs way down, then you are going to suppress your metabolism. Then all of a sudden, you're operating at a lower level than you necessarily have to be. And as you said, Ron, it's almost like, you know, compressing a spring. And at some point, that's going to release and you're going to have this huge rebound, you're going to gain body fat back. So the, the, the biggest problem with metabolic suppression is, is people just doing way too much, trying to lose too much body fat too fast. And, and then you end up causing that suppression. So you, you just have to stick to some of the core principles of nutrition. How, how much body fat am I trying to lose in a week or a given period of time? Am I eating enough protein to sustain my lean body mass and immune system and so forth? And, and how am I handling that around my training? You know, if, if you're prioritizing your nutrition around training, so that even in a calorie deficit, your training is always as maximal as it can be. That's part of keeping that metabolic suppression away, you know, in the other direction where your metabolism is staying super strong within that context of, of dieting. Interesting that you say that because we had during episode one, the importance of peri-workout nutrition, uh, adding, you know, carbs pre-workout. I myself, for, for myself, I have a big, large meal with a lot of carbs pre-workout intra-workout, post-workout. So the majority of my carbs are really around my workout. And I've seen some big differences versus when I was doing five or six meals a day where I used to break all my carbs separately. My training is better. I'm able to hit the, I recover faster. I recover better. So I've seen all of that. And that's great. That's a great point of, of, of discussion there. So in, in your, in your opinion, or how do you assess somebody's body? Type? You're dieting somebody down. That's a newbie, let's call them a newbie or somebody that's relatively novice in dieting. How do you assess their body type? So how do you know whether a person requires more fats, less fats, more protein, less protein? The reason why I ask is because I had a client, a customer of ours said, buys her products, sent me a message and said, do me a favor. Can you look over my macros? I'm 5'1", 120 pounds. Uh, I'm bulking, but I'm petite. And I said, what are your macros? And I think it was like something like 220 protein, I think maybe 220 carbs and 40, 50 fats. And the first thing that came to mind is, okay, well, what are your creatinine levels are? What are your button levels are? Because I'm thinking, you know, uh, the protein's a little high for somebody that size. Uh, I, I see that more on a male than a female. So if you can share a little bit about something like that, how do you, how do you approach a female versus a male competitor or non-competitor when you're setting up a diet? So, so the first thing you have the logical status, you know, how, how tall are you, what's your body frame size. Um, and, and, and you can gain a lot just from looking at somebody, you can certainly get a lot of information through their history. So I like to say, you know, show me some photos or, you know, when you were just 18 years old or a kid, tell me what your body type was like, what your weight was like. And, and so that'll give you a frame of reference for, for, you know, what their metabolic rate really is. 
and then even just you know talk to them about their food you know like like this particular person you know on that level of food what's happening are you gaining are you losing and so you know with that is just kind of the backdrop you know that's that's getting my mind ready then to make those decisions you're talking about now i just have to go to the science and we know for example that the the rda for protein you know 0.8 grams of protein per kilogram of, of body weight that's that's okay for survival you know that's going to that's going to keep keep one foot out of the grave but most of the science agencies that have really looked at this have said, well, we really need to be about two times that level. And so uh, that gets, well, I shouldn't say it gets close because it depends on your body weight. But like for this particular person you're talking about, that probably gets them close to their body weight, or at least their lean body mass weight would be two times the RDA. And then some research has shown that up to three times the RDA can be beneficial for some people some of the time you know that's that's where you kind of start to get on the other side of that question on this because it's on the three times the rda it's more beneficial during fat loss to be at higher protein versus a muscle building time where you would want more of the um, carbs and protein together to get that muscle protein synthesis and an anabolic effect so I, i look at those two as almost the same in that context because when you're dieting, you're, you're catabolic. And yeah. so you're, you probably need to guard a little bit with, with a little bit higher level of protein. And then when you're trying to gain muscle, now you're in a calorie surplus. So you've got extra calories and you're right. You're in a, in that calorie surplus, you, you're in a more protein sparing status. So, so you don't necessarily need it, but you're also, this is your time to build. And so why not make sure you do have a little bit of a buffer there? You know, some studies have even tested up to five times the RDA and, and again, I mean, law of diminishing returns, there's, there's very few effect there. And so you're probably wasting some of your calories that you just could use somewhere else. But, but in real numbers, let, let's say me right now at 175 pounds, you know, the RDA for me and my lean body mass level would be, you know, around 60 grams of protein a day. Obviously that's not a large amount, but for a general population person, you could say, okay, that's kind of the baseline. Well, now if I want two times, you know, now I'm getting up to 120, 125 grams of protein a day. And I've done self-studies, self-analysis on this. And, and right around that level, if I go below it, I start losing lean body mass. As soon as I get back up to two times the RDA, I regain all my lean body mass. So then when I go above two times the RDA to two and a half, three, it really doesn't benefit me. I, I do not see any more lean body mass gain, but I will say Sometimes it can functionally help me, maybe with, with satiety, maybe for just, you know, how I control my meals, you know, it has a little bit of benefit, but, but at least for me, and I'm probably average metabolically, I'm kind of meso slash endo, you know, that I just fit right at the top of that bell curve. Yeah. So I know that a lot of, and to remember too, and Ron and Joe, correct me if I'm wrong, because I feel like I'm sitting at the table with like, you know, like I've done your courses and trained with you and stuff like that. So with um, excess protein, a lot of times if our body's not using it, it's just having to break it down into glycogen anyways. Like the process of, um, is it uh, glyconeogenesis? Correct. Is a term, which is where your protein, excess protein is just having to convert over to usable sources of glycogen anyway. So sometimes having a little bit more, I wouldn't say moderate protein, but moderate in an approach to where this specific, specific person is coming down. She might actually notice better performance, more usable glycogen right away, maybe even better digestion. hundred percent. And that's why I love what Ron said, which is like, Hey, you know, maybe your BUN and your creatinine levels are like super high. And so there's, there's kidney stress that you, you know, don't necessarily have to suffer through. Um, so yeah. 
And that's where, you know, that's kind of my starting point. So, so, you know, Ron, I, I look at their, their overall, you know, physiology, body type, et cetera, as I can interpret it through their food intake and their body structure. I start with protein. Then I look at the context as Sonia and I were discussing. So are they in a calorie deficit trying to lose? Or are they trying to gain? So now I'm going to start to decide, okay, now we have fat and carbs, you know, those are our big energy substrates. So which direction am I going to go? If they're trying to lose body fats, I'm probably going to take their dietary fat down to 20% of calories or maybe a little bit lower so that we have room for some, some carbs. We want that, that training and protein synthesis and metabolic effect from carbohydrate. Uh, I'm not a big keto guy and we can, we can go through that at, you know, at another question point, but, uh, Yes. Yeah, so, so go ahead, Ron. What was your, your follow-up there? My question was with regards to gluconeogenesis, does all the protein, so let's say like the reason why I ask is because I just had my lab work done and I evaluated my creatinine levels, my bone levels, and I could utilize more protein because my, my BUN levels were a little bit lower than normal. Uh, they were within range, but they weren't at opt optimal level. So that tells me that I can use a little bit more protein to, to basically put a little bit more lean body mass and I would benefit from that. My question is if I go over, let's say I'm eating about 220 grams of protein right now. And if I was to go to 300 or, or 275 and my body stops utilizing all the protein, right? Does it really become, does it really turn into glucose through the process of gluconeogenesis or do you basically, some of it does turn into glycogen and some of it basically gets lost? Mm -hmm. Well, it's, it's either gonna be turned into glucose or fat. Um, and, and so, you know, the first thing I would say is I wouldn't look at, at, at your bun levels as, you know, I need more because I'm at that low range. If, if you're at a low range, that means your body's simply good at, at getting rid of what it doesn't need. Uh, once you get up to a certain high level, then that means your body's getting behind and you're not excreting it as well. So, so, you know, it's, it's not necessarily because, because a lot of this is very genetic anyway. Uh, it's, it's not necessarily a huge marker of your, your perfect function. Uh, but I will say when I have been dieting, so there's a catabolic process and I'm, I'm working extremely hard in the gym, you know, trying to maintain muscle, you know, that's when my liver enzymes go up a little bit more. That's when my BUN levels go up a little bit more As soon as I'm eating for maintenance, you know, then it all kind of settles back into that mid range. And, and I've had that. It's, it's interesting that you say that because I've actually went through that phase where we were pushing a lot of calories, trying to get bigger. And what I noticed is the stress that I was putting on my, my, my body, my gut really took a hit. And I've discussed this with Sonia before, uh, the correlation between your hormones and your gut is just, you know, it's, it's, it's a topic of, it's another episode on, on its own. Right. But the stress, the level of stress that I was putting on my body was really, I mean, I was pushing 500 carbs, I was 540 carbs. I was pushing 300 protein. I was pushing a lot of, uh, about 50, 55 grams of fat. And it really stressed me to the level that my cortisol levels were spiked. Uh, my liver enzymes were spiked. I mean, there was a, a lot of different things. The second that I, we lowered carbs, we lowered protein, everything came back to normal. Understanding your body, and I think a lot of it has to do with genetics. Uh, I think myself, I don't process protein as, as well as other people may. Uh, but now I'm eating 350 carbs and sometimes I'm just flat. I can, I can utilize more carbs. And based on my labs, I can probably see that I might, based on my triglycerides or based on my, my different, my glucose levels, I can see that my body can utilize uh, or at least process carbs and fats a little bit better than it does with proteins. Uh, so that, that, that's, I mean, that's a lot of information there. Great information for us to have. Ron, let me jump in with one thing too, because I know we have 
about Gen Pop. I know we have a lot of bodybuilders listening right now who know about bun and know about creatine levels, but just for the Gen Pop people who are kind of listening to what's going on, bun is a level in which basically if we're, our body is breaking down and digesting proteins, there's like a waste and it gets, you know, kind of like flushed through our body and the liver produces this, right? And so different levels of protein in the way that our body's digesting it will affect our bun levels. So that's one of the things. And creatine is when muscles are being metabolized, that's what's passing through the liver, or I'm sorry, through the kidneys. So when that's high, it's showing that the kidneys are under stress from too much protein. So just kind of to reference back, like, you know, if you don't know, like where we were going when talking about that, it's basically, you know, the sum of it is the body on labs will show you how you're utilizing protein. But I think the biggest thing that Joe's saying is you kind of got to look at your genetics and biofeedback too. There's a range and it's not like, let's just say your range is 100 to 150, you know, maybe somewhere in between 120 safe. And if you're feeling good, they're great. If your recovery is there, great, maybe 130, but play around with how you're feeling. I think the, there's not necessarily one way to do it. I think it's, you know, if you're not looking at labs, listening to biofeedback and, and kind of going for the, the center mark and the long game versus pushing your maximum potential every time, especially for a lot of our gen pop clients who are just lifting, you know, four or five days a week and, you know, looking for fat loss. Uh, that's such a, that's a great point you make, uh, Sonia, because we go through this, although we talk about this all the time. And I think you and I talk about it. The, the labs can say a lot, but it's how you feel, right? It, it, we talk about testosterone levels on labs and some people are like at 300 and feel okay. Other people are at 700 and feel like shit. So a number that's within range will tell you where you're at, but how do you feel at that? I wasn't feel, I was feeling like shit eating 550 carbs, 300 protein and 50 fats. I was just, I was bloated. My skin was bad. I was a mess and I wasn't feeling right. So I knew that something was wrong. I had to go back and track what was going on. And we looked at labs and my labs were all over the place. They were just, they were just not good. So for the gen pop, as Sonia was saying, analyze how you feel. Don't just base it on just labs because genetically, for example, myself, I run high cortisol all the time. Number one, I'm hyper as can be. I'm all over the place, but that's just who I am. But genetically, I've always had high cortisol levels. So I struggle a lot with keeping my cortisol under control. Genetically, I don't think I've ever read anything lower than 19 on my cortisol level in my labs. Uh, so I take cortis. I take different, different supplements to keep a little bit of control of my cortisol. But a lot, all the information that Sonia has brought up and Dr. Joe's brought up is just uh, awesome. So let me ask you a question, Joe. What do you see in, 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 the, in the gen pop when you're looking uh, at, at establishing a diet plan? What's practical and what's not practical? Uh, what we see a lot and what I've heard a lot is people that go overboard when they're starting a diet plan, right? They're, they may be a little bit overweight and I'm starting my diet on Monday and I'm going on salads. And that, to me, that's not sustainable, right? So what, what have you seen and how can you share a little bit of your knowledge so that, that Gen Pop can make uh, sustainable diet plans or nutrition plans, let's call it a diet, a lifestyle plan so that they can sustain their long-term weight loss. Yeah, so this gets right back to the, the entire origin of my career, which was you know, creating the foundation of flexible dieting. And as I was doing that in explaining to people, look, you don't, you don't have to follow a rigid meal plan. You don't have to eat the same meals every day, just broccoli and chicken or tilapia and, you know, rice, like you literally can just do the math and, and, you know, stick to your health values, the food principles that you want, but, but you've got a lot of, <clears throat> a lot of margin to play with here to, to eat the foods you like and how you like. And so that, that whole philosophy 
got twisted to the point where people were now just eating a bunch of crap. And, and I remember one guy writing how he ate nothing but like, you know, pizza and donuts for a whole contest prep and got lean and just wanted to show people that, Hey, it's all about just the calories, food quality doesn't matter. I'm like, well, yeah, but how awful of a message is that? So like, like who, who gets into a sport like this and, and wants to be unhealthy and, and also for the general population lifestyle community, we do need, as you said, Ron, something that is sustainable. And so, you know, I, I have gone all the way back almost 180 to helping people understand, okay, you still have to have structure. You still need a certain meal timing and meal cycle, uh, you know, plan in your day that works for you physiologically. You know, what's going to be the best thing to utilize the protein in your diet for amino acids and recovery? What's going to keep you in, you know, in that metabolic position where you're losing more body fat is energy because on the same amount of calories every day, you can have a wide variance of how much body fat you actually use just because of, of that metabolic switch in what position you're in between using glucose as energy between meals, you know, and glycogen or, or fatty acids. And so, you know, there's a way to utilize structure that's just right. And, uh, I love that both of you have talked about what's right for you. You know, let's figure out with, with your occupation, your schedule, how you feel, your training schedule, your sleep cycles, you know, what feels best, what gives you the best results. And now once you have that structure established, now we can decide where to employ some flexibility. And, 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 and here's, a, here's a really simple example of that. I, I have not competed in years. I'm retired. Don't ever plan on competing again, but obviously I'm, I'm training just as hard as ever. I still love the sport and, and the health and the aesthetic and the functionality of it. So what does my day look like as an, as an applied health scientist, pro bodybuilder coach, you know, how, how would I eat? Well, I, I eat the same foods almost every day. And then when I get to dinner, it's like, okay, now it kind of depends on what my wife's structure of my day, the, the foods I eat are simple enough. They're the ones I like, or I would change them. And I do from time to time, but I don't wake up every day and, and just, and just sit in the kitchen and try and decide what I'm going to eat. You know, I'm eating the same foods I like, and, and I know they work for me. I know the physiology of it. I know the result, obviously, and I, I can, I can see it in the mirror. I can step on the scale and see it. So, uh, you know, I think for sustainability, it, it's all about going through that process where you have to learn the language of nutrition. That's the structure. Then you can play it how you want. Think of, you know, I have a guitar sitting right next to me here. If I, when I started to learn how to play guitar, I had to have lessons. I had to learn chords and I had to learn strumming patterns. This, this is structure. Once I learn that instrument, now I can freestyle. Now I can create what I want. I've got all the flexibility in the world, but I had to learn that structure first. I think that brings it to a really good point. I know with a lot of my clients, you know, a lot of times the question is, you know, do I have to do this for the rest of my life? And the answer is absolutely not. I would be a crap coach if you literally had to be face down in an app your entire life. But it's really important that you start to learn the foundations of food and the fundamentals of like what's inside some of these foods, because we may think it's one thing and it's another thinking, you know, we're like an avocado in general. It's not just that it's not just carbs. It's like a blend, you know, so really starting to learn the foundations of food and the fundamentals is huge. And then, like you said, once you do that, you know, I'll have clients that, you know, now we start doing, um, you know, untracked meals, like two or three nights a week where same thing. And it tends to be with dinner where they can be with their families 
And for these lifestyle clients, it, we haven't had real changes in, you know, you know, some, some weeks are a little bit more than others, but for the most part, sometimes those untracked meals end up being less calories than if they would have tracked, but they're kind of listening to their body, or maybe it's a little bit more here, a little bit less there, but they have now this cognitive ability to say, all right, I'm going to find like some, some veggies and some carbs, some proteins and some fat. And they can kind of do a little macro math in their head. Like what I do when I go out, but it doesn't have to be all or nothing relying on an app, but because we built that foundation, you know, now they have it. They've learned macronutrients. They've learned about their micronutrients. They've learned about their meal timing and protein spacing, and they know how to make those adjustments when they need as well. So again, they're not stuck to a specific program or an app. I think the, yeah, the, well the, the basis of what Dr. Joe and Sonia are saying is for, for, for Gen Pop is learn to, learn to structure because I'm the same way. I get up at 530 in the morning almost every day. And the first thing I do is I go and get my vitamins and my probiotics and I drink it with water. The first thing I do is that. Then I get, get I mean, my, my whole day is pretty much structured. I eat the same meal like you every day. So learning to structure and it's not all or nothing. If you can do 80, 20, 80% of your meals where you're tracking and you're making conscious decisions and 20% where you're saying, okay, 20% of this year, I'm going to eat what I want to eat. I guarantee you, you will see some changes in your life and there will be permanent changes as you continue to go through the process. Let me add one thing to this 80, 20 rule. <laughs> I got, I got a bone to pick with this 80, 20 rule rule. I feel like 80, 20 works for maintenance. And Joe, correct me if I'm wrong. You guys, everyone has their own opinion. When you are in a fat loss phase, I think you need to be kind of more like 90, 10. And I say that like 90% on, on target and 10% utilizing those foods that maybe aren't super macronutrient, micronutrient rich, more like tasty, like feel good foods, but still within those limits. I think that people tend to take this 80, 20 as Monday through Friday, Saturday through Sunday, and their 20 is so high that it doesn't balance out, you know? And I think that food quality in a, in a fat loss phase matters 100% of the time because your one day of eating bad, if it overshoots your averages for the other week, it's a numbers game, you know, and it will make a difference. It's not like if it's all in one day, or I've seen these coaches where they go, you've got 24 hours to eat whatever you want. Or I have a friend and her coach gives her six hours to eat whatever she wants once a week. Wow. And I'm like, first of all, that's encouraging binge eating behavior. Like that's, that's that just is. Second of all, like the science behind that, there's none. And those things do store in your body. So you might actually feel better if it's instead of, you know, binge eating, you know, one or two days a week of just bringing your calories higher and then finding that sustainability, you know, maybe you're just losing, you know, seven, you know, 0.7 to 1% of your body weight a week, but that's sustainability, especially in a natural athlete. Yeah. I think, I think it depends almost just in a matter of semantics, what we mean with that 10 or 20%, because you know, flexibility can, you know, 10 or 20% can mean, well, I don't want my oatmeal. So I'm going to have some Cheerios or I don't want my oatmeal. So I'm going to have lucky charms. It's like those are dinner. I'm going to eat a potato instead of yeah. having my bagel with turkey. Yeah. You know, it, it doesn't mean 20% of the time or 10% of the time I'm, I'm going to Domino's pizza and not even tracking it. It's, you know, we're still tracking it. It's just that instead of being so tied to structure, we're just making, you know, smaller changes to the food sources and, we're using flexibility for our meal timing and things like that. But yeah, I, I rarely, and, and I agree hundred percent with you, Sonia, that, that if you're doing it for maintenance, then that 10 to 20% can actually be untracked. Like this is kind of your free meal space. Like go 
go out to dinner with your spouse, have some popcorn at a movie theater, like that kind of thing. And you're not, you're not tracking every single calorie, but absolutely. When you've got a goal, you are on the job to be losing body fat. That level of flexibility should still fit your goals. I always say earn that 80, 20. My opinion for with 80, 20 is almost what Dr. Joe was talking about. And I totally agree with what you're saying. It's not it's not that 20% gives you the right to binge. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is flexibility. Even when, when making when you're making some really smart decisions and you're going out and you want to have ice cream with your kids. Okay, well, make, let them have ice cream. I'll have Froyo because it's a little bit better for me. So I have some flexibility where I'm going to have other foods that are outside of my oatmeal and blueberries every morning because maybe my kids want to go out to breakfast and I want to go to breakfast with them and I'm going to have maybe an omelet. You know, maybe I'll substitute eggs and in, in, in eggs and oatmeal for my blueberries every morning. So having a little bit of flexibility is great. That's what I think the 80-20 stands for, which leads me to, to, to talk about binge eating, because a lot of times people do think, and I, and I agree with what Sonia's saying. Some people think that, okay, 80-20 or 90-10, 10%, I'm going to the buffet and eat 5,000 calories because I got that 10% leeway that I'm going to work on. Well, you just ruined your entire week in one day or maybe one sitting. And that's very feasible. And I've seen it because I've gone through it where I've been dieting super hard. And I decide to go to a buffet, which big mistake when you're trying to get to a goal, right? It's very difficult to stop because your body is so hungry all the time. So we've all been there. And I think that uh, for, for Gen Pop, Make smart decisions in that 20%, 10%, whatever that percentage of, of that you decide you want to be flexible, you still want to maybe not track, but make smart decisions. I want to dive now into a little bit more, maybe dieting for competitive bodybuilding and things that you see, Dr. Joe, from a competitive standpoint. We talked a little bit about the novice. We talked about Gen Pop. Let's, let's get into the science of things of how you go about dieting a figure competitor, a bodybuilder, and what principles do you tackle? What are, how do you structure something for somebody that's actually looking to compete? So, so the first thing I do is, is look and, and kind of run the scenarios mathematically again, which is, you know, how much time do we have? How much body fat do we have to lose? And you have to make decisions on, on therefore, is this feasible? Is this going to work really well? Are we going to be able to spare lean body mass or do we just need to alter the schedule? You know, maybe that contest date's really not the right one. So, so I've got to start with what we can do with, with reality. And then my, my second concept is going to be, you know, how do I now fill that time with these phases? And I used to make the mistake of thinking, okay, let's, let's kind of, you know, stick our toe in the water. Let's start dieting a little bit. You're on a, a pretty nice inflated metabolic rise here, a wave, because you've been in the off season, your food intake is higher, you've been in maintenance. And, you know, so we'll, we'll, we'll kind of go through this little transition, but a lot of times you can, you can lose some valuable time there because the, the difference between the amount of food it takes to sustain you and maintenance to actually create that calorie def- deficit that's not necessarily linear math. Everybody likes to use the formula. Well, you know, a, a pound a week of body fat is 500 calories a day, you know, and so we'll just make that calculation. But very quickly, speaking of metabolic adaptation, without that influx of food that it takes to, to support maintenance, you know, your metabolism does settle down a pretty solid notch. So I, I have a competitor actually uh, who lives up, you know, close to you guys, you know, phenomenal national level, you know, searching for her pro card competitor. 
And, and this year I said, we are really going to get after this. You know, here, here's your, your maintenance levels off season of food. We're going right in strong into this wave. And then we can use smaller diet breaks. We can use higher calorie modulations. I, I like to use, um, you know, either kind of a five or, or and two day split. So here's your five days baseline. Then on the weekends, we're going to bring up calories, maybe 15 or 20%. Or if their body type is a little bit more mesomorphic, we may just need one or somebody may do better with two kind of midweek and weekend instead of two back to back. Some people I will even use, you know, still kind of a free meal, you know, going back to our, our semantical difference of, of that, that flexibility at the very beginning, if somebody only has a few pounds to lose, we got a lot of time. I'll say, Hey, you know, for the first couple months, let's just, you know, here's our baseline, then use a little bit of a free meal. And even that to Ron's point to me has some discretion. So it's like, you know, we're going to have this free meal, but let's make sure it's no higher than 150 you know, grams of carbs and maybe an extra 25 grams of fat. So here's the budget. You can have freedom and flexibility within that budget. So, so I'm, I'm looking for a really strong start and we're going to be able to sustain that with, with those kind of modulations. And then I always want to be ready early, not just because sometimes we, we don't know how that person's body is going to react and they may slow. If you have the ability to be as lean as possible and then start building your food intake back up to the show, you know, this whole concept, everybody knows the phrase flexible, or I'm sorry, uh, reverse dieting. When I started that 15 to 20 years ago, it wasn't about how to come out of a show, like reverse out of the show. It was how to build your metabolism into the show. And, and so let's say somebody gets their body composition, they've been dieting and they're all the way down to kind of where they need to be. If you can start increasing their food and yet they're still in a calorie deficit, that you'll, you may slow down that weight loss pace, but then that extra food starts churning the metabolism a little bit more. So then you give them more food and they keep getting leaner. You give them more food, they keep getting leaner. Pretty soon you're at almost off season levels of food. They've gotten even leaner, but now their workouts are more productive in the gym. They've, they've, they're less sensitive to insulin and carbohydrates, so they're not going to have the potential to spill over, you know, meal to meal on contest day. So many good things happen because you've just created that upward metabolic spiral. So when I'm looking at that whole pre-contest as a, as a unit, Ron, I'm, I'm looking at those kind of things as, as an entire arc. You know, do we have the time? How are we going to, as I said, I'm looking at the, the, the math of, of the protein intake, the fat intake, how are we going to manage carbs between the baseline days and the higher days, you know, wh- how much cardio are we going to do and, and what type. So a, a lot of planning goes into this and, and you, you've got this in your mind as a coach, you give it to the clients, but now it still comes down to just consistent monitoring and assessments and making those adjustments uh, you know, keep keeping an eye on the trajectory all the way through. That's where real coaching comes in. You know, a lot of people think it's just having the magic formula. Like here's the best plan ever. It's like, you know, that's, that's a starting point, but now you have to manage that process all the way through. That's, that's the most critical element. Absolutely. I think that's what a lot of people, you know, they, they really want like, Oh, just tell me, what is it? Like we get DMS all those times. Like what should my macros be? And it's like, well, first of all, that's a lengthy conversation. And second of all, 
it may change weekly and where we start you may be different. And one of the biggest things I changed as a coach in the last, you know, year, year and a half, especially with competitors is going a little bit harder in the beginning when they have it to give. And then it kind of gives you more in the end to diet break, reverse up, have more time into the show and kind of see how the body's going to go in. And I don't mean like we're cutting 1200 calories. I just mean, we're going a little bit more aggressive, you know, fats are at 20, not 30. We just kind of, we're playing around with different stuff to see, you know, where it is for their body at that time. And, and it, I feel like it's given me better results going a little bit harder in the beginning in a sense. And then utilizing the tools in the toolbox down the line, then those slow measures where maybe the first like four or five weeks, you're not really dropping, even though food has come down. Because what I've found with, with clients, gen pop and competitors is on a reverse diet, we may get their calories up to 23, 2400, but they're not going to diet on 2000. This, I mean, the science might say that, but they're not diet. They're not really losing until we hit that like 16, 17, maybe even 1500 calorie mark, just depending on how, you know, how big they are. Some of these people are like 115 pounds. So it really just depends. I find a lot of times that people can maintain on a lot higher and you have to come down to their genetic fat loss position. And that may or may not change after numerous reverse diets. One of yeah. the things that, I, that I've noticed and, and I think is, um, and I hear it sometimes from different clients, it's my coach, I'm losing a pound, a pound and a half a week, and my coach keeps cutting my calories every two weeks. And I think that it has a lot to do with who you have as a coach, because if you're losing on a certain amount of calories, why in the world are you dropping more calories? Why not just ride that roller coaster? Uh, that leads me to my next question for you, Joe. Science shows that there in, in some coaches apply it, some don't. Um, some clients are skeptical of this. What is your take on back-to-back refeeds? Um, some coaches say that they see some major benefits by taking a client to baseline back-to-back days. What is your take on that? Yeah, so I was speaking with Eric Helms in Australia a couple of years ago, and he had just started kind of looking at this and doing some of the research. And then I think at that time they had done maybe just one study and he said, you know, here's what it looks like, how this is going to play out. And it's, it's such normal homeostatic physiology, which is that you could say in, in the course of six months, let, let, let's look at, you know, you know how we measure macros and calories per day. Well, let's look at how many calories we're going to consume in six months. You know, how many hundreds of thousands of calories and grams of carbs and so forth and say, okay, if, if we diet at a certain level here, and then we give them, uh, you know, back to back days on the weekends, as I described as one method or we give them an entire two week diet break every three months or however you do that. At the end of that period of time, just like total work in a week is what determines more of your physiological muscle, lean body mass and strength gains. It's the total calories in that time. So you can divide them up a lot of different ways and you're gonna get to that same result. But again, it still comes down to the functionality of how that person feels. You know, Maybe it helps them to be more um, cognizant of, of their, their diet when you give them a, a two day, you know, refeed system so that it's, it's just different from their normal work week. So it just fits better for them. It, it's easier for them to track and, and make those meal adjustments. Maybe they eat one fewer meals, you know, over the weekend per day. I, I just don't think there is a lot of science to say that this works better. I think it's just how it makes that client's week, you know, go in terms of, of how they can, they can adhere to it. But, but I will say some of the differences. So, so let's, let's kind of play this out in real life. Let's say you give somebody a two-day refeed. So you know maybe they get an extra 100 grams of carbs each day. 
okay, you know, I'm, maybe I feel just a little bit better. Maybe that doesn't even put a dent in it. But what if I gave them 200 grams of carbs in one meal? And I said, man, now you get to go out have that gigantic baked potato, a dinner roll or two, really fill up. You're going to have a monster workout the next morning. You're going to, you know, your serotonin levels go up. You're going to have a better night's sleep. Like maybe that works better for somebody. So I don't think it really, you know, is something to say, this is the law. This is better than, you know, the alternative. I think it's something, as Sonia said, you kind of test it. You, you let your clients experiment a little bit and you just see. As a coach too, it's kind of knowing, asking for that biofeedback in pictures, especially as you get closer to stage. Um, having those pictures, you know, after the day after your, your refeed and then the day after that can be really beneficial both to you and your coach is like what your peak week might look like, how your body is utilizing those carbohydrates. Those all make a huge difference as well. There's a physiological difference. So if I'm titrating in, you know, uh, an, an increased amount of calories over two days, yeah, I'm, I'm getting those extra calories, but I'm really not filling up liver glycogen very much, certainly not much you know, muscle glycogen. Whereas if I do it in, in one entire bolus, then all of a sudden I, I get that mechanism of, you know, you know, leptin changes and so forth. And so, you know, different pros and cons, it's definitely different physiological impact. But again, I'm, I'm not saying that, that every single person is going to respond the same way. Yeah. What's happened to me is when I've actually cut, uh, gone up the baseline, I've had a refeed and I actually dropped two pounds. And a coach of mine said, you know, let's give you a back-to-back refeed to see how your body reacts. What is your take on that? Well, I, I think there can be some value depending on how your body is responding. So, you know, the first thing you have to do is remember that, that golden rule of science, which is correlation doesn't equal causation. So you have this big higher calorie meal or day and you lose two pounds. It certainly wasn't body fat. And even if you say, well, I, I, maybe I used extra glycogen. Well, mathematically, we know you, may, you just had a bunch more carbohydrates. So you really didn't even use glycogen. So it could have been a myriad of other reasons why you actually lost those two pounds. So, so I wouldn't make any decision based on just, just one, one number, you know, one, one trial. Uh, but if that happens repetitively, like let's just say that your net week, so let's say that you drop two pounds that next day, but yet your net weight overall in the trend line was still flowing down, like you were still losing really fast, then I would say, well, certainly that one refeed did not do enough. You know, we, we still need to slow things down. So I could make the decision to double that, now give you two back to back, or I could just take your baseline calories through the week higher and stay with one. You know, you, you really have so many options. So I, I think this comes down to the coach's ability to interpret what's happening and say, okay, you know, wh- why are we still losing this fast? Where's the best place to put extra calories and why? Because if, if your baseline is still low and now we've got to jack two massive days in to keep you from losing too fast, that means those other five days are probably still too catabolic. Like I'd want to buffer those first and then use that, that, that higher calorie day for what it really is, you know, maybe a social break, maybe just to try and keep your metabolism, you know, functioning optimally. So, so there still has to be just a lot of different interpretive, you know, points to consider there. Great source of information there, because I noticed that sometimes coaches are very mechanical in terms of, Hey, I'm, this is what I'm going to do, regardless of what, how you're, you're getting that biofeedback from, from your client, they're going to drop calories because they had a plan in mind. And that's what they're going to do. So the, the skill of the coach, I think, is to basically read your client. 
you may have a plan in, in your head, but as you're progressing, you're going through your fat loss journey, it's the coach's responsibility to say, okay, how is your body responding? How, how are you feeling? Are you dropping? I had a, a client, not a client of ours, but uh, a client for, for, for another coach that basically said, look, I'm stuck. Uh, I'm, I'm 194 pounds. I'm getting ready for a show. I'm at 50 carbs. Uh, I'm, at, I'm at an hour cardio right now. And my coach basically just added another 30 minutes. So I'm at an hour and a half of cardio with 50 carbs. I said, the first thing that came to mind is your cortisol levels are probably skyrocket and your body's saying, I'm shutting down, find a way to, to, to make me healthy again. And we'll talk. So can you address that a little bit better? And then we'll jump right into uh, peak week mistakes and some of that other fun stuff. Yeah, no, I'm really glad you brought this up because things like sleep can dictate your progress more than anything. Uh, I read one study where if, if, you, if you get less than five hours of sleep a night consistently, you, you have a 68 higher percent chance of being obese. And, and that has a lot to do with cortisol and those extra you know, eating hours you have and so forth. And so there's, there's so much that ties into this. Matter of fact, I was doing a coaching call with some coaches and I got this, this coach who is, is kind of being mentored by me and he's a, a wall street guy. He's, he's done something like 20,000 lectures to fortune 500 companies. He's just a high rolling, you know, professional kind of guy wins at everything. So then he starts doing bodybuilding and, uh, and of course he wants to do well there. So it's all about a hundred percent, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. And he said, what I had to learn in driving myself to hundred percent means sometimes I've got to sleep at a hundred percent. And so he said, now I make sure I get eight hours of sleep every night. Like that's to me, that's giving a hundred percent. It's, it's not sacrificing sleep to do more work. So, so it's so important. I know you guys are just, you know, so big on the micronutrition as well. Make sure you have everything you need for health and, and sleep and, and food quality, taking care of yourself, your mental energy, you know, all of that is just so critical. I think one of the things too, that people forget on the refeeds when they see that weight dropping is, was that a cortisol release? Was your body holding on to inflammation and those carbohydrates came in and your body was able to relax and you had a little bit of like a cortisol release in the sense of like, it came back down. There was a big difference. I actually started doing, so I do double refeeds with my clients because especially when they get leaner, you know, we do as we were kind of coached until we learn otherwise. And so I was like, okay, your, your hardest training days are going to be your two biggest refeeds. And now I actually have them do their rest days on refeeds. They are like, thank you so much. It's my favorite day of the week. I feel amazing. The next day, I feel like I'm ready. They're just like, they're ready. They're like, let me at it coach. I'm ready to kick ass this week because they've completely recovered on those days when they feel good, their bodies. And really if you're eating too, you know, if your carbs are 200 and you're training on that day, you're really not getting the effects of those carbohydrates until the next day anyways. And so why not, you know, get the extra food in on that day, recover, bring the cortisol down. And then the next day when you're fully, fully recovered, you slept well because cortisol's down. Now you show up to the gym well rested with those carbs lo actually loaded into your body. And then you can utilize the rest of that during that week. It's a critical, critical piece there, Sonia. And that's especially works well when you're in a calorie deficit, because like you said, you, you, you have that calorie increase, you're using it all during the workout and it really didn't give you any benefit. You know, it takes 24 to 48 hours to, to fully seat glycogen in the muscle tissue anyway. So for you to utilize those carbs and, and, and allow that to be assimilated in all of your muscle tissue will give you an entirely different training experience the whole next week. Yeah. Cause we don't use that muscle glycogen again until we work that muscle. So if you're, if you're spending all of that carb increase on a day, you're training that particular body part's going to benefit, 
but you're still starting at, at a depleted level for the whole rest of the week for the rest of your body. And so I, I totally agree with having those higher carb, higher calorie days on rest days when you can. Excellent. So the, I guess the moral of the story for people that are listening is um, get your get, get a coach that understands not just the macronutrient and the micronutrient aspect of things, but also reading your body. Cortisol plays a big role in, into everything we do, a stress, hormone, sleep. I'm guilty. I don't sleep much. So when I raised my hand and you guys were talking about sleep, I said, oh man, they're talking about me here. But I do understand the, the importance of sleep and the, the correlation between sleep and performance, right? Which is, is really what we're talking about, which leads me to the next topic. This is going to be interesting because I know that you're one of the pioneers, Joe, in, in terms of peak week. Just to explain what peak week is, peak week is basically the week that is leading up into your show. Let's just say that you've been training for six, eight, maybe even 12 months to bring your best package to the stage. What your coach does between, you know, the weeks prior and the actual time that you step on stage is vital into how you bring your absolute best package. One of the biggest mistakes coaches make is they leave their, their clients in a position where they look better the next day or the day after that. And Joe made it an art himself to make sure that coaches were able to bring the best packages to their clients during the actual show by taking all the information and data that we found in science and bringing that into bodybuilding. So Joe, will you go ahead and just kind of break down what that looks like? I know it's not one size fits all, but I just kind of break down how sodium and water and carbs are absolutely vital to peaking. Absolutely. So Again, this is one of those career-defining moments for me in my my 20s when I started looking at this and trying to figure this out. And, and it really comes down to the fact that everybody was trying to get these extreme results. They were talking about these super compensation effects of carbs and, and all of these things where you can somehow on the day of your contest, you know, magically wake up and look even 30, 40, 50% better than even any time that week. And they were shooting for this thing that just doesn't exist because as we know through homeostasis, whatever extreme reaction your body is going through because of the extreme action you took, that's a pendulum that's just going to swing back and forth. It's never static. So there's no such thing as saying, wow, I peaked perfectly in that 10 minute window. It, and that's something that's almost laughable. Like people say, oh, I, I peaked 10 minutes after I was off stage. Damn it. I, right, I honey, ruined it. Yeah, I ate honey right before I went up and, yeah. up and that was the peak. Yeah. So what you have to do is consider all of these variables that matter. You know, water is 65 to 75% of muscle tissue. What holds water inside the muscle tissue is carbohydrates, glycogen. And so, you know, take these big blocks first and let's get all of the variables moving in the same direction so that again, we can control and predict the homeostasis that's happening on the way up to that level. Because if I can get somebody moving in a place where they're getting better and better and better and better and better and better, and, better, and I, I know on Friday before the contest, they're, they're at 90, 95%. Here's what we have to do to get the rest of the way without crossing that line. That's a lot different than going like this all week long, up and down, up and down. Let's, let's take this variable completely out. Let's load this and deplete this. You know, that, there is nothing scientific to that whatsoever. It's just, it's gambling. It's guessing. And so what I started doing was, was getting away from that rapid backload of just massive depletion and then carb loading. And I said, well, well, what if we just start keeping carbohydrates kind of high? Let's find that glycogen ceiling early in the week, maybe taper off a little bit and, and then do a slighter load that we can control. So this is what I would call kind of an undulating peak. 
And then people started to say, well, let's do a total front load. Let's just put all the, all the cards beginning of the week and then kind of taper into the show. But now you've got all the variables working in the opposite direction you want. You're not getting fuller, you're getting flatter. So then some people, you know, went back to the, the rapid backload. And, you know, that again, the pendulum keeps swinging back and forth, even culturally. So, so I, I finally got to a point where I was teaching coaches to do a progressive linear load. So it's like, you know, let's start the week here. Let's, let's keep loading, loading, loading with carbohydrates. Water is going to stay the same. I mean, w- water is going to be excreted or retained based on the, the solutes that you're keeping in your body. Number one, glycogen. Number two, the minerals like sodium, potassium. So, so the water is going to stay there and we're just going to control that based on those, those solutes. So I, I even like to keep the training pretty similar. Because when you, when you do the old school method of, of depleting at the beginning of the week with, you know, tons and tons of work, and then you rest the, the last part of the week, well, then you get this static response where now there's no glycogen turnover in your muscle tissue. So water, you know, edema starts to kind of accumulate around the muscle tissue just for healing and recovery. And so you get a little filmy. And so if, if you just look at it as, you know, what works for me best all the time, when I spread out my training, my sleep is great, my cardio is not too high, too low. So I'm staying pretty active, We've got a factor in maybe a travel day. And then, like I said, I'm, I'm ramping those carbs up, I'm monitoring their tightness, their fullness, their body weight. And I can, I can just toggle, I can, I can, you know, push the accelerator down or let it up a little bit based on where we need to be. But I'm, I'm looking for this place where I can do one final thing or two the night before the show, the morning of the show to continue that upward process. So this is where I may actually increase sodium on contest day strategically at the right times. But, but even those last couple of days, Friday and Saturday, like we talked about a few minutes ago, it takes 24 to 48 hours for glycogen to fully get assimilated. There's no such thing as just carving up the day of the show, you know, drinking honey before you go on stage, that shit's going nowhere. Like that's just in your GI system. That's not reaching your muscle tissue. What you're feeling in that pump up is just a little bit more energy and your body is going, right? And And hydration more than anything. Yes. And I think one of the biggest things that people leave out and that you mentioned is like sodium is really a huge part of the peak. And a lot of times we can even keep carbohydrates in that really good threshold and then utilize sodium for more or less. Because if you think about a muscle as like a planet, right? And we want that planet to be nice and full. We need to drive a spaceship with carbohydrates and water. We need to also have salt to get everything going into the muscle because one without the other in that equation equation will leave you with that filminess, which is why sometimes, you know, you have coaches who pull sodium, then all of a sudden they push carbs and you just look either super flat or you look filled over and soft. You get some salt and some water when you go out to your tight and taut. It's because we've now pulled that water from intercellular or from extracellular. So in between the, the, this tissue to intracellular in the muscle, and now we have an expanded tight toned body. It's beautiful. Mm. And, and the way you just described that you know, think of it in terms of priorities. So water is huge. If I'm feeling flat backstage, if I can't get a pump, if I don't see any vascularity, you don't have enough water. Uh, if you if you can feel that, uh, but then again, you're just not tight, like it's, it's just not where it needs to be, then, you know, you may need a little extra sodium. So I'm, I'm always, I'm getting people because of that progressive linear load to the place where 
carbs, macros, all that stuff is set. You don't have to worry about that. That's not part of manipulating anything at the end. It's now just, just water, sodium, sometimes a little bit of, of sugar or even alcohol. You know, I've, I've had clients do well with, you know, doing a shot or two of whiskey backstage or some wine, um, more so because of the low glycemic load of the carbs, um, you know, that, you know, the alcohol doesn't have time to dry you out as people would say, quote unquote, but, um, you know, there's just even just decreasing cortisol, you know, help, helping them relax on stage. But uh, yeah, you just, you have to look at the big priorities first and, and everybody seems to get them backwards thinking it's all about carbs and so forth. And, and that's, that's probably like third or fourth on the list in terms of need at that point. I so have a, a client and I was peeking him and I, he's sending me pictures and I'm like, like we're four days in and I'm doing this progressive load. And I'm like, you're just not looking good. And I, and I have it like, Joe, like I had it just like you taught us, right? I was like, I got the whole thing lined out for you. Like exactly what you're eating, your water, your sodium, like it is lined out. And I call him and I'm like, where's your water? And he's like, I don't really like drink a lot. Same as I've done my whole prep. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> in your, like, first of all, we had this conversation. I'm like, we got to get your water. And he's like, I didn't think it mattered. And I'm like, oh, it matters. That's why it's specifically the amount is on there. And we started getting him hydrated and like, I, and, I, and I'm glad I didn't add anything else. Cause I was like, I don't know what's going on. Cause I hit a point at like 250, 260 carbs where I was kind of like, no, no changes were happening over three days. And all of a sudden we added water and the, the bam, he, he like bloomed within hours. I was like, oh my God, that totally made sense. And it's amazing because those things really, really matter. And as a coach, if you guys are coaches listening, or if you're doing your own dieting, taking the time to really watch how your body's responding, even prior to your show around your lifts, manipulating sodium water can be super beneficial as to how your specific body is going to handle your peak. And, you know, sometimes you'll have clients, they get nervous backstage and you might have their sodium at like maybe three or four grams, but if they're nervous and I'm a nervous peer, I pee all the time when I'm nervous and they're just running through water like that. Well, now they're going flat. You don't know why you have to, you have to not be married to like one number. You have to listen to that feedback and watch the body comp and play around with those Definitely. factors. So, so I have a question. How does potassium play yeah. into all of this? So you, you need a certain amount of potassium to kind of match um, sodium. If you look at the sodium potassium pump intracellularly, you know, they, they kind of work on a, a on a 45, 55% gradient. So if one is, you know, super, super high, it doesn't go to something like 90, 10. It's just, you know, 55, 45 shift back and forth. And the thing is, most of us through the foods we eat, we get enough potassium. Uh, I, I don't I don't mind somebody kind of scheduling that out. If, if, if you're going to look at every single food that you consume and look at the, the milligrams of potassium, it, and I think I've seen a couple of coaches do this, you know, they'll, they'll say have this much sodium per day, have this much potassium. But then you're getting into all of those variables of, you know, your exercise, depletion, how much are you using? So I simply like to make sure that they're still getting enough green vegetables, you know, just kind of consistently across the board. If they consume any fruit or anything like that, we're going to keep that kind of consistent. But, but to your point, one of the things, Ron, that I do actually try to do for most of my clients is, is still have a little bit of fruits as, as a standby on contest day. Because even though, like I just told Sonia, I'm not necessarily looking at doing hard manipulations of, of carbs on contest day. Sometimes just a light fruit because of the potassium uh, can, can, can actually make that sodium work better. Because again, you can, you can be injecting a little bit more sodium, a little bit more sodium and trying to get the, the muscles fuller 
but if you don't have enough potassium, then aldosterone is just going to create the environment that your body's just not going to utilize the sodium. So it's, you have to have kind of both in tandem, but to go even one step further, there are other minerals in that dynamic. You know, if somebody's, you know, low on calcium, magnesium, things like that, that, that can be a factor. So I hope most people are sophisticated enough to at least have a multivitamin and mineral, you know, kind of a, a regimen that they're doing. And, and that's pretty much going to keep those very, very stable, you know, through every day. So then, then I can use sodium is really the rudder, you know, to get us through that, that process. So one of the questions that I have is other than sodium and potassium, what other peak mistakes have you seen throughout your, your career? What, what are the biggest, other biggest mistakes that you've seen that athletes can actually intake and, and, and say, okay, I've been doing it this way. Now I know it's wrong. Why don't we try this approach? You know, I, I mentioned it, but, uh, but I think it bears repeating in a bigger sense in that training. Um, it, you can, you can overtrain or undertrain in, in, you know, a lot of people are traveling to cities to, to compete where they may, you know, want to do a little sightseeing. And so it's like, you're competing in Vegas, you're competing in New York city. And so the, the day before the show, the night before the show, you're out, you don't even realize you've walked five miles or something. And, and that can really be depleting and fatiguing. And, you know, you can get that, that edematous response in your legs. Uh, so that's a factor. Uh, other, uh, you know, kind of the opposite are not, not doing anything, as I mentioned, where all of a sudden you've done no activity. So I, I like to have some clients do activity, even the morning of the show, if it's possible, uh, because you know how you get your body temperature up, you're, you're sweating. So your subcutaneous, you know, pores, sweat glands are, are depleting. Uh, you start metabolizing food a little bit more. So you, you, you decrease your risk of spillover. So I've had some incredibly good results by people waking up on contest day, doing a, a pretty good little cardio, maybe even a workout, and then they eat their breakfast or first meal. And that just pulls the glycogen in more, keeps that glycogen turnover and, and body temperature up. Uh, so that's one thing is just making sure that you're, you're really controlling training as a variable. Um, the other, I would have to say kind of comes back to what you guys were talking about earlier, which is cortisol. It, this is almost a sports psychology thing, but I've seen people who have everything physiologically nailed. They get to the venue and you can just see them start freaking out. Like the adrenaline, the cortisol, it, it's anxiety. Maybe it's just, you know, the, their competitive nature. And, and you can see somebody flatten out in a heartbeat. Uh, you mentioned Stonia being a nervous peer. That's because cortisol instantly makes you start releasing glucose and lipids in your bloodstream for fight or flight for energy. So what happens when that, when, when, as a result, you're liberating those solutes, the glycogen out of your muscle tissue and your liver. So now water has nowhere to go. So number one, one symptom is you're urinating more. So that's going to make you flatter. And now you're also spilling over. So without any food intake or change, you can induce a massive spillover and flattening effect just because you're so, you know, hyper anxious and, and nervous or, or excited. So I, I think you have to go through almost kind of a sports psychology training in terms of uh, visualization. Like when I get to the contest, what I'm going to do, I'm going to spend some time laying down. I'm going to spend some time walking around. I'm going to get away from the crowd. I'm going to have my headphones in, you know, you've got to have a process mentally 
that that keeps you in that game where you're you're in a relaxed but competitive state. So that's another big one a lot of people miss and they just can't figure it out because they think it's something with their food and it's just all mental state. Do you ever use any any supplements to basically help the cortisol and the nerves when an athlete's going on to stage? Or do you use any ashwanda or any kind of supplements of that sort? Yeah, I, th I think those are really, really good, um, you know, as kind of a physiological base. And then, of course, there's the placebo effect. You tell somebody you're going to take this and they think, oh, this is going to fix it. I'm, I'm relaxing it. Now I'm confident because I've taken this supplement. You know, that's a that's a legitimately studied 40% effect for, for some people. Um, but, but also, um, I, I don't want to overuse this cause I know it sounds gimmicky, but I, I have had some clients use alcohol for that reason, you know, have that sip on that, that tequila, you know, have that shot of whiskey, have that five ounces of wine, just kind of, you know, throughout the, the prejudging or something. And, and it really has helped some people. Awesome. Any questions that you have Sonia for, for Joe? Um, well, I know we've, we got a lot already covered. Um, and I, I, you know, he pretty much answered it when we went through the aldosterone and the, the nervous peeing and letting like those processes. So for me, it's just, you know, um, I could go on forever for questions. And I know that we pretty much, as far as the messages that we got in the DMS, Joe's covered pretty much all of them. So, um, I will say real quick, like one of the things that actually got me started on just being a next level coach and really looking at the science was, you know, jumping on and doing Joe's training program. So those of you guys who don't know, it's the national Academy of metabolic science. And if you are a coach listening right now, and you want to learn the science and not just the hand-me-down information from one of your coaches, I highly suggest taking it out. Um, it's the fundamentals of nutrition is the first series. And then he did an amazing second series with, oh my gosh, I'm, I can't believe Paul Ravella right now. And, yeah. um, and they talk about peaking, right? They talk about the art of peaking and they talk about, you know, water and they talk about salt and they talk about all of the things that really matter, not just in, um, you know, bodybuilding, but also in performance athletes as well, because sometimes we just have a client and we may not be doing them for, for bodybuilding, but they're wanting to look good for a photo shoot or a vacation or a wedding. And, you know, education will drive compliance and having the information to give to your clients of how to absolutely look their best on days that matter most to them is important. And I highly recommend those, both of those courses to any coach that's really wanting to, you know, learn the science behind macros and behind peaking. The message that we want to send out to our audience is when you're looking for a coach, whether you're establishing your own nutrition learn consistency, learn to plan things out, learn what's sustainable to you. If you're planning on competing, make sure that you have a plan, make sure you have a coach that listens to your body, not only listens to the way you feel, but listens, listens to the biofeedback that your body's saying, because it's much more than just nutrition. It's hormonal. It's how your body's resting. It's your sleep. It's your sleeping cycles. It's your supplementation. It's your nutrition. And your coach, as he goes through the process of looking at your pictures and looking at how you're looking, looking at you're 12 weeks out, 15 weeks out, how are you progressing is going to dictate your results. And this has been a great episode with Joe. Joe, we, we hope to have you here again in the future for a, a little more intense nutritional advice, if you want to call it. I think uh, you've addressed a lot of questions and, and I know that I had a list of things that everybody wanted to ask. We, I think we nailed all of them in about an hour and a half. So I appreciate you coming on. Sonia, thank you again for being here. Joe, thank you again for being here. And like I always say, guys, thank you for your uh, for your attention. Thank you for supporting our goals. Thank you for everything that you that you have given us to us uh, at Team uh, Amino Pure. 
as always, God first, family second, as I always end up, and we're out.